What can literature teach us about apologetics? And how can the imagination help us explain the faith to others? Join us today as we explore these questions and more with Dr. Holly Ordway. She is the author of Apologetics and the Christian Imagination. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University of Steubenville, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, President of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we are talking today about Christian apologetics and imagination. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan. And we are very pleased to welcome our special guest, Dr. Holly Ordway, the newly appointed fellow on Faith and Culture with the Word on Fire Institute. Welcome. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. So how is it that we are blessed by your presence with us today? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, my specialty, um, as you can probably guess from our topic, is imaginative apologetics. And that really comes from my own path to the faith, because I was um, raised in a totally non-Christian home, um, became an atheist in college, was a convinced atheist um, all the way through getting my PhD, was very influenced by reading Tolkien um, in my PhD work and finding, hmm, here's an author who's a Christian. I don't believe that stuff, but he seems to, and he's such a great author. He's got huh. these great insights. And to cut a long story very short, I decided to investigate, discovered, oh, Oh wow, Christianity is true. I better do something about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Became a Christian, was a Protestant first, um, and then six years later um, came home to the Catholic Church. And so this experience um, really helped me understand as a Christian, as a Catholic, um, the role of literature and the imagination in evangelization. And I've worked for the past seven years for Houston Baptist University in an ecumenical program on cultural apologetics and been training up people to engage the culture. And in that work, I've just, again, seen so deeply the need for a, a deep involvement with culture, not a shallow, you know, just touching on popular, sure. popular themes, but really understanding how the culture works and how we can transform it. And I think the imagination is really key to that effort for the new evangelization. Uh, could, could I ask you a question? Uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, imputing the best of motives in becoming a Christian. You found it transforming. But what about your friends and family and colleagues? Were they sort of traumatized by that? Interestingly, of the people that I knew at the, at the time, nobody really seemed to care. Um, yeah. And that- Just another life choice. Exactly, and that to me points to one of our challenges as apologists. It's actually more encouraging people are upset as they were, for instance, when now St. John Henry Newman became a Catholic. It was front page headline news. Yep. Now you become a Catholic and people are like, oh, good for you. Um, if, if some of them anyway. Happy, right, right. Exactly. Some of them rightly get that it's a very important move or becoming a Christian. But this sense of, oh, whatever, is a real challenge for apologists because if you don't care, you're like, oh, why should I even look into it? It doesn't really matter. Good for you. 
So your own odyssey, I, I think, would be a natural fit for being drawn subsequently to uh, narrative art, uh, storytelling. Yes. Because your life uh, is a story and it's still unfolding. <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> Absolutely. So who helped you? Uh, who were instrumental uh, in shaping your imagination and baptizing it? Well, really, the authors, um, C.S. Lewis with his um, Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien with his Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, all of which I encountered as a young girl so early, in fact, I don't remember reading them for the first time. They were just always part of my imaginative structure. And I was so religiously unformed that I did not, literally did not realize that Aslan was a Christ figure. I see. Yeah. So who makes that, or how did that, and I think that's really important what you're doing, that connection, how did that happen for you? You read this story, which is a beautiful story, and you begin to make those connections. Well, I think what happened for me is that these stories in particular, um, Narnia and Middle-earth, formed in me the idea of real goodness and suffering and the fact that it's worth fighting for the good. Um, it's not easy, but it's worth doing. It gave me a picture of a lot of gospel concepts that I didn't know were actually gospel, gospel concepts. concepts right. And it showed me a world that was meaningful. Now, as an atheist, I did not intellectually believe that there was such a thing as meaning. I thought you had to self-construct it. It really wasn't there, and you just had to deal with that. But I wrote my dissertation on fantasy centered on Tolkien, yeah. and that got under my skin <laughs> because I started to realize, okay, there's something here. There's something irritatingly substantial right. about Lewis, about not Tolkien. Good, not just a good story. Yeah. yeah. They were fundamentally true, and not true in the sense of factually true, but spiritually true. Make that distinction, because I think that's really important. Yeah, I think this is key with, with metaphor and image, exactly. um, because I always get very irritated when someone says, oh, that's just a metaphor. Like, right. there's no just about a metaphor. A metaphor is a way of conveying truth. So, for instance, the, you know, the story of you know, Frodo carrying the ring to Mount Doom in Middle-earth, that is a true depiction of suffering um, for others. It's a true picture of self-sacrifice. It's a true picture of the, you know, of the human soul responding yeah. to grace. And it, even though Frodo is a, is a made-up character, the underlying concept is true. And because it's in a story, it's accessible. It's not right. intimidating or scary. Right. I could take it in, and then later, when I did read the Gospels, I could say, oh, Jesus is a lot like Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> I had some meaning to attach to it. In a, in, a, in a deep way. This well, is well, what because is Tolkien like. and Lewis were, were so profoundly gifted storytellers, you can make the suspension of disbelief so easily because the characters they portray are so attractive, yes. so engaging. You don't have to trace the Christic connection between Aslan uh, and the sacrifice he makes to recognize that, you know, even if he is a bloody lion, the sacrifice is really uh, pretty amazing. I mean, here's a guy willing to submit to a terrible death uh, for the sake of others. And that's really important because that concept, the meaningfulness of something like sacrifice, we have to have meaning for that word to understand the meaning of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. Because otherwise, it's just a word. It's just a Christian jargon word. Right. And Lewis's gift, I mean, the, the Narnia Chronicles are Christocentric. He's very clear about that. His gift was to present these truths in a way that really worked, that were the story. Yeah. And this is a bit of a kind of a pet peeve with, with me, you know, and I, I've taught creative writing. 
too many Christians today want to take a shortcut. They want to get right to the message and they right. treat the story as like a, a sugar coating. Mm -hmm. right. well, Readers are more sophisticated than that. They know when they're being given a pill wrapped in a, in a bit of candy, like, no right, thank you. Right. You've got to tell a good story. You've got to put the art first and allow God, if you've been faithful to God, it, the truth will come out in the story. The, the human soul is obviously starving for something more than just propositional truth yeah. and convincing argumentation. Starved is exactly the right word. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I remember teaching our kids growing up, you know, catechetical doctrine, you know, that was just part of our homeschooling. And you could tell that they were sort of giving us a line of credit. But it wasn't until <laughs> after dinner, for more than 10 years, we systematically read through the Chronicles of Narnia, and then we did it again. Excellent. And it was like body and soul came together. Yeah. Because then the truths of the doctrine, you know, and the virtues of character are embodied in a way it is not threatening. It's exactly. not argumentative. Right. It's enticing. It draws you in. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, I would say that I appreciate the rehabilitation of metaphor. And you know, at the same time, I'm aware as a theologian of the misuse of metaphor. Mm. I, had, oh, yes. uh, I had a theologian trying, you know, when I was a Protestant, I was taking a Catholic seminar in a doctoral program. And the theologian was, you know, he'd written a book from magic to metaphor because transubstantiation was magic, mm. whereas mere symbolism is metaphor. Mm. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking like, this is wrong at so many levels, <laughs> you know. And yet at the same time, he was a very effective teacher and helped bridge, mm. you know, the things for me. But I, I, my takeaway was, it's much more than a metaphor, no matter how we define it. Exactly, you know? yes, yes, yeah. yes. And that really gets at the heart of my work. I mean, in the subtitle of my apologetic book is an integrated approach. Right. It's the both and. Yeah, the clearly. imagination, I emphasize the imagination in my work because of my path to the faith and because I feel that it's neglected and I'm working to bring back a piece that's, that's been missing, but it's a both and. Because if you just have the story, as I had as a child, for instance, but you never hear the truth that undergirds it, okay, you have a good story, but you don't have anything to, to, to cling on to. You don't have any substance. You've got the longing, but you don't know what you're longing for. Right. So that's why we, we need doctrine and imagination. We need proposition well, and in, imagination. in the absence of that integrated approach, you don't really know anything. I mean, you need that as an apparatus whereby to understand man, God, the Blessed Mother, who is both virgin and mother. Exactly. Christ is both human and divine. Man is both body uh, and soul. You don't want to uh, disconnect the two because then you're left with something grotesque, exactly. unrecognizable. You know, Flannery O'Connor makes the point that the meaning of the story is embodied and you have to read the whole story. You can't simply extract it and put it on a postcard uh, <laughs> to sort of speed things up. Right. Your life is not something that can be easily extrapolated. The meaning of your life is your life. You've got to live it. And it may take a while before that meaning emerges. Exactly. And then I think is one of the dangers that a lot of apologists and evangelists face today. They're impatient. Now, I, I get that they people are, you know, People are in danger. Salvation is at stake. I get the urgency, but there is such a thing as going too quickly and rushing things. Right. And I certainly felt that, you know, when I was an atheist, if someone tried to, you know, 
you know, give the hard sell on the gospel. No, thank you. No, thank you. I'll walk away more confirmed in my atheism than I was before. So we have to be willing to be patient and to allow these things to develop, to have the narrative, and to give those propositional structures, those doctrinal structures, but also like you did, give time for them to sink in. You can't just give a proposition once and say, boom, there you're done, you got it, memorize it, you're good. You've got to integrate it into your imagination. When we wrote Rome Sweet Home more than a quarter of a century ago, we did it as therapy for our marriage, you know, in response to a good Catholic marriage counselor. In three weeks, we were laughing, crying, praying, you know, apologizing, forgiving each other. But we had no idea whether it would get published, much less, you know, do what it did or what it's still doing. But what we heard from people is that it's a story. It's not a series of arguments. Mm. And yet it was a story of what studying scripture and theology did for me by way of convincing argumentation. But it's the story aspect. You know, you appeal to the imagination through stories. You know, and this is just a slight adjustment. It's not, you know, a negation. But I do think that, you know, if the intellect is the faculty that knows the true and the will is what chooses the good, there's something more to the imagination than just stories. Mm-hmm. You go back to Augustine in the Confessions and in De Trinitate on the Trinity, and his soul was not just intellect and will. It was memoria, intellect and will. And the memory is oddly and ironically somewhat forgotten. Because without memoria, it's not just remembering what I had for dinner last night. Without memory, you know, I couldn't finish this sentence. Without memory, I wouldn't know who I am. I wouldn't know why I'm here. I wouldn't know who you are. And so memoria for Augustine is how you really appropriate reality in almost a pre-intellectual way. And suddenly you are a character, but you are ensconced in this interpersonal matrix of others, you know. Memory is this relational ontology that you need a compass for. And hearing stories, it's like, okay, that helps me by way of analogy to understand who I am, who they are. You know, my parents, my siblings, my wife, my kids. Memory is a kind of, in uh, Cavadini, a friend of mine once said, he thinks it's a kind of liturgical faculty. We do this in remembrance. Mm. Remember the Sabbath. Well, well, Scott, it's precisely a liturgical. Yes. I mean, without memory, the church could not confect the Eucharist. She draws upon these memories and they become efficacious. And it's the story. Yeah. It's not just the history of salvation. Yeah. It is also a drama. Mm. And it is, it's, it's filled with comedy. It's mm. filled with tragedy. But it's filled with characters that you can relate to and others that you can't. And that's what life experience is. And this brings up a good point about what the imagination really is. And this is something I do um, talk about in my book, which is most people tend to think of the imagination. They go immediately to imaginary stories. That's right. Which is a product of the imagination. But in fact, and this goes back to from someone like St. Augustine, St. Bonaventure, the imagination is a cognitive faculty. It's how we make meaning. Right. Yes. And uh, I'll refer back, my uh, colleague Michael Ward has done some great work on explaining this. Um, Uh, drawing on C.S. Lewis, that our senses bring in the data. Our reason has to make a judgment, but until we have a meaningful image for the reason to operate on, we've got nothing. So for instance, you know, one of your staff members picked me up at the uh, hotel this morning for this this event, and I had never met her before. So she had certain expectations about, you know, there's going to be someone waiting at the hotel, she's got blonde hair, etc. Her senses brought the data of seeing me out there, her imagination pulled it together and said, here's a picture that I think is Holly Ordway. And then her, her reason could then judge, is this actually her 
or is it just someone else who happens to look somewhat like her who's not behaving as if she's going to be picked up by you know in my car so the imagination is really the function the cognitive function that creates meaningful images out of the data that's involved. Now those images might be true or might be false. It could have been the case that another blonde haired woman was waiting for a ride and it wasn't the same person and then her judgment would have to say, oh, oh, I was wrong. So the reason is the, is the judgment making faculty, but it has to have something to operate on. It can't work on nonsense. And that is why the imagination is truly so central to all of our work because it's not just in imaginative arts, it's in every, it's in our use of, of language, sure. in everything. We cannot form meaning without the use of the imagination, mm, and that's why it's important. And absolutely, and there's obviously much more to talk about that, so please stay with us as we continue on University Presents. Imagination has always been a vehicle for evangelization and apologetics. Uh, Dante, for example, in his Divine Comedy, portrays salvation in terms of a pilgrim who begins in a dark forest and descends deep into the earth through hell, through the inferno, up Mount Purgatory and into the nine spheres of heaven. More recently, writers like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis have conveyed the gospel message in terms of images like uh, magical rings and a talking lion. These images, because they appeal to the imagination, are able to convey the gospel message in ways that matter-of-fact, plain language simply cannot do. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college you'll find yourself in an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents, and we're talking about Christian apologetics and the imagination with Dr. Ordway. Holly, you mentioned, and we've talked briefly a little bit about the imagination. I remember in seminary, uh, there were some people who saw the imagination as a bad thing, just make-believe, this, but that's not the case. Right, the imagination is, is really the faculty that makes images in our minds, draws on sensory data, also draws on things like memory, um, so we can produce images of things that don't exist or have never existed, couldn't exist. So the imagination is the image-making faculty, but the images that it produces can be true, can be false, just as our re reasoned arguments can be true or false. But that faculty is, is really inherent in our functioning as a human being. One expression of that is the imaginative arts, film, right. you know, poetry, song, painting, stories. But the imagination is at work in us all the time, whether we know it or not. And it's if we know it, then we can use it well. Yeah. So for somebody to say, I have no imagination, that's simply not possible, is it? Right. Yeah. Now, they could have an impoverished imagination. Okay. It could be starved or suppressed. Yeah, you could say the same thing about the stomach. I mean, maybe you're anorexic and you just don't know how to eat well. Uh, the imagination needs to be fed. It does. Up 
I, I don't want to cut too quickly to the chase, but it does seem to me uh, we could easily lose sight of the supreme image, Christ, mm. who's the image, the expression of the invisible God. I mean, he's been described as the supreme existential metaphor. <laughs> you see this, you see that. Mm. Uh, two things wedded together. Uh, that is the Catholic uh, sensibility. Uh, and if we're nourished on this Christic event, then I think we view all of reality through that same Christological prism. Yeah, exactly. This is such an important part of our own tradition. You know, you referred to Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, but the term for image is evocative, and that is icon. Hmm. So, yeah. if you look at the iconic structure of images, you can see how it can go for better for worse, because idolatry is the erroneous and debased misuse of images, whereas Christ invests images, icons, but also art, fantasy, literature, whatever, with the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that He embodies, that He is. And so, you know, I, I think we, we recognize that Imagination can be make-believe, and it can become the instrument by which we relativize mm -hmm. any claim to have the story, the meta-narrative, you know, that binds all, us, all of us as characters in this grand narrative. I, I think in postmodernism there is such a resistance to that, you know, that the meta-narrative, any claim to no reality, any way that you might try to impose your reality upon me is like mortal sin, if there was such a category. <laughs> You know, uh, Chesterton has a great line. He says, what I like about this God is he takes such an intense interest in his secondary characters, his minor characters. I mean, we're, we're not just props, but we're on a stage in a theater, and Christ is the protagonist. He wrote the play, uh, uh, so he's the playwright, but he's also the character, the chief character in the story, victim and hero simultaneously. I mean, he comes into the world to give us his story, because our own stories will just not carry the freight. They won't go very far. So narrative is something we can't be hostile to. No, we can't, we can't be hostile to it because we have to then be hostile to existence because our lives are narratives. Yeah. We have beginnings, middles, and ends. Yeah. Um, and you know, just because we don't know what the end is going to be doesn't mean that there won't be one. So we are fundamentally narrative creatures by the way that God made us. Um, and here's, I think, a way that the narrative arts can help us to appreciate reality more fully. It's what J.R.R. Tolkien calls the process of recovery, recovery of true vision. So he talks about, for instance, reading a story about um, a fairy story and, you know, with magical, you know, magical food and magical drink and Pegasus and things like that. Yeah. Then you come back into real life and he says, now you can really appreciate the potency of the things, the words like horse or bread or wine. You really get a sense of what it really is because you've had this experience yeah. of a, of an imaginative expression of right. it. I, but, you know, one, one thinks of that splendid uh, uh, episode in the life of Helen Keller, uh, when her hands are placed under the fountain and she feels the water, uh, and her teacher says, water, and the connection is made. It's a moment of magic. Mm. It's like something out of the tempest. Uh, it's so extraordinary. quite a bit of time in your book dealing with those very issues, these words that have meaning, but we maybe don't know what that meaning is. Exactly. So. And I think one of the problems, you know, you, you um, brought up the richness of reality, you brought up um, the idea of being starved, 
And I think that in our current culture, we're really starved for meaning. We've got you know, a cardboard nourishment, imaginatively speaking. Right. So we use these words and we don't have a rich, robust meaning for it. And I do include um, Catholics as well, because mm -hmm. we often use these words but don't really grasp what we mean. We say, you know, Christ is king, for instance. What does that even mean? And okay, we say the phrase, et cetera. Sure, sure. And I think we really need to to consider the ways in which the words that we're using are possibly empty of meaning. They've never been given that substantial meaning. And I find that that is one of the most common problems in working with young people. I help out with the uh, confirmation class in my parish. And one of the things that I, that I find when I talk to them is that most of them don't have a robust meaning for basic words like prayer, sure. grace. Sure. Um, they, it's not that they haven't been given the definition, because they have, but they don't have a robust sense of what it means. And because of that, they don't have an anchor. They don't have a sense that it holds together. Right. And their faith is very fragile. To say, to say God loves you assumes that we have an image of God, an image of what is love, <laughs> right? So right. I, think that, I think you do beautifully that we need to be uh, able to give life to those and meaning to those words. And it takes time. It's not, you know, it's not an easy or quick process, but I think one of the things we can do is to start with how do we use language? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, for instance, as an example, we can use words without reflecting on it. You know, what does it mean? Oh, you should pray about that. Well, right. what, what, are, what does that person really understand when sure. we say that? Does that person have an understanding of prayer other than basic intercession? Hmm, maybe not. You know, I, I think part of the problem is a reductionist approach to what we mean by language, because when you, when you say words have meaning, I can, I can hear my students say, okay, then give us the definitions, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. And, and, and words do have definitions, but meaning is sort of what takes you beyond Webster's, you know, so that even if you have two or three or four definitions for a word, you have many more meanings because language, our words participate in the word. And so we think of metaphor or analogy as an instrument for knowing. But as Catholics, we also believe in the analogy of being, mm. that reality itself is structured metaphorically. So this is that, but this is everything else as well. And it's the interrelatedness of all things. And it's, the, it's also surprising the discovery to realize that, you know, reality is not just a place where we find persons. I mean, if the reality of God is three persons, that isn't part of God, that is all of God. And mm -hmm. so all of reality is shot through with a kind of cosmic personalism that, you know, we, we, don't, we wouldn't pick that up from science. We might not even pick it up from literature because it's yeah. almost too good and too beautiful to be true, but that's the truth. Yeah. And so many people today don't really have a robust idea of, of what God even means. Right. And so one of the things that I like to do is I have a, if I have an atheist say like, oh, you know, your idea of God is so stupid and silly, don't jump right into argument. Say, what do you mean by God? Right. Oh, father figure in the sky who's gonna shoot me down if I say a bad word. Well, I don't believe in that God yeah, either. Yeah, that's right. right. Just, that's, that's, a stupid, yeah. that's a stupid God. I don't you believe know, in that uh, God. Aquinas, Aquinas <laughs> said that to call God God is not accurate enough. Rather, he who is. Yeah. That, I think that, 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 you know, that, that catches uh, the, the, the full flavor of I am who am. Exactly. Being. Most people don't think of God uh, in terms of that existential energy. Exactly. And that's the conversation we need to have because it, if we can have a meeting of, of meaning with the atheist to say, oh, okay, well, by God, what I mean is, you know, existence itself, um, the great I am, the cause. Okay, 
now let's talk about that. Do you believe that could be a person? Very different than this, oh, it could be the giant spaghetti monster kind of nonsense. It really cuts through a lot of the distractions and gets of to course, the essence. More and more, the dialogue partner for the Christian is not the intellectual who wants to blast God back to the Stone Age, but the man who suffers. And that's yeah. why I was so struck by your example. When you tell your friend God is love, and he loves you, and you have to love your neighbor, that's an abstraction for a lot of people, especially if they come out sure. of an abusive exactly. uh, situation. What is love? Well, that's a really great point for apologetics, because we talk about, you know, God the Father. Well, what does the word Father mean to people today? I've worked, you know, many years with undergraduates to know, you know, when I taught undergraduates, I would say a good two-thirds of them came from divorced homes. Yep. Um, so what does father mean? The biological father whom I never see, who abandoned me and my mother, my mother's current boyfriend. Yeah. If you have an abusive father, the word father, the fatherhood of God can bring up a meaning that is painful, that's yeah. difficult. And that person, that's, that's a valid meaning for that person's understanding of the word God. Now, it doesn't match with objective reality of who God is, but that's what the experience of Father has meant for that person. So we need to help them to see right. Father means something different. And you speak that, that in essence that is the work of the apologist, yes. is, is getting, I love the image you use about a road, that the evangelization is putting them on the road and apologetics is getting the things out of the way. Is that accurate? <laughs> Basically, yeah. yes. So yeah, just uh, isn't that your work? The work of the apologist is just that. Yeah, and especially you know with language, there's so so much of the work that we're doing as apologists, the objections that we face. Sometimes it just comes down to the meanings of words, and that's something that apologists didn't have to do a hundred years ago, right. um, but we do now. One of the things you do is also distinguish between two ways of apologetics, the negative and the positive functions. So it is answering objections, it's clearing away misunderstandings, but it's also then demonstrating the truth, but also the coherence yes. of these mysteries of faith. And they're not just doctrines that you've got to believe, that there is a quality of mystery that is also coherent and that, you know, it's, it's not fast food for the mind, exactly. but it is a kind of feast, you know. And, and there's no silver patient, bullet. No, that's right. You, Person relationships are the context, friendship, conversation, bearing witness, but not imposing, you know, but at the same time, sharing your story and not withholding it because I'm afraid once they find out I'm religious, they're not gonna wanna be my friend, you know? Well, how does uh, St. Peter put it in his letter that we need to give a reason for the hope that is in us? Yes. If you're fired by this hope and you have imaginative constructs of it uh, set down in literature, the arts, dance, movies, uh, then it becomes easier, I, I think, to marshal all of that data pursuant to the demonstration that, yeah, there's a God, he gave us Christ, uh, and he is the way back home to the Father. And this, I think, St. Peter's injunction to give a reason is in response to people asking, what is the reason for the hope that you have? Ah, let me share that with you. Right. And I think that's key, because people need to ask the question. Because if we tell them the answers to questions that they aren't asking, as a teacher, I know very well, they won't retain it, they won't be interested. Yeah. You have to cultivate the interest, cultivate the meaning. Only yeah. then will they ask the question. Yeah. Only when the question is meaningful right. will the answer be meaningful. Right. Yeah. And Peter points out, always be prepared to give a defense, an apologia, a reason for the hope that is within you. Because I feel like people outside of Christ aren't just searching for truth. 
they think they have that, but what they don't have is hope. Mm. They don't have any reason to endure suffering. And I think that is the matchup, yeah. that when you give an apologia, it's more than just a logical demonstration. Mm. It's the basis for the truth of love, endurance, and suffering. Which hope. should be demonstrated in that person's life. life. Yes. People should have a reason to say, hmm, that person has a life that I can't really account right. for. What is the reason for that hope? Hence the question. Hence the question, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. I think it's accidental that uh, Jesus used parables to talk about transcendent things, to talk about His Father in Heaven, to talk about Heaven uh, itself. Uh, and the parable, for example, of the, uh, the prodigal son. We don't need uh, details about the brother. Very often that's what people ask. What, what about the brother? Was he angry? Was he justifiably angry? Was his anger justifiable? Uh, what matters in the story is the relationship that Jesus draws, the love of the Father for His Son. You don't have to trade top-flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real-world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, and we're coming to you from the Communications Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating all of the cameras and the equipment. Members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, are guiding our discussion on Christian apologetics and the imagination with Dr. Holly Ordway. Dr. Ordway, you spoke a little bit about the words and, and the meaning of words, but then there's also you spent quite a bit of time in the negative meanings of words or language. So maybe you could just finish and speak on that. Yeah, well, one problem we have in our culture is that we don't have robust meanings for words like prayer or God or Father. That's one problem, the lack of meaning. But another problem we face is words that are have their meanings distorted. I call it verbicide. Yeah. So for instance, we talk about sin, but for the average person on the street, sin just means fun stuff Christians don't want me to do. I mean, you can go into a grocery store and, and buy chocolate cakes advertised as sinfully delicious. Mm -hmm. And I always look at that and I think, how sinfully? Are they lying about the ingredients? <laughs> right. Are they cheating the supermarket on the price? And of course, it's not what they mean. They just mean, oh, it's very delicious. Right. But that is a debasement of the word sin. And given that that's so pervasive, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't take the word sin seriously. Mm. Why should they? To them, it just means like almost a positive connotation. I recall being on a college campus one time and they were advertising a dance and the headline said, come sin with us. Exactly. Oh, Something yeah. wrong with that, right? Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, Orwell uh, has a great line uh, in the politics of uh, the English uh, language. He says, in effect, that linguistic corruption, the debasement of language, always precedes political corruption. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if you can cheapen the language, then it's it's not a big stretch to tyrannizing uh, over right. its victims. On the most yeah. basic question, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. What does it mean yeah. to be married? I mean, exactly. we're, we're finding those words that have traditionally meant to understood to be 
profoundly being changed. Yeah, and it's happening at a level that most people don't realize, and so their, their thoughts are being shaped by the language that they're, that they're seeing and they're hearing. And now, in one sense, you know, we might say, well, what can I do about that? Um, but I think here the individual person can be much more attentive to how they use language. Um, so for instance, as a Catholic, don't use words like sin light, you know, lightly. Or here's you know, a little pet peeve of mine. Let's say that I make a mistake about say when I'm supposed to meet my friend. It's very common to say, oh, I said 9 a.m., oh, I lied, 10 a.m. No, right. you didn't lie. Not unless you intentionally deceived your friend. Right. You made a right. mistake. Yeah. And that is so common. We need to stop using that kind of phrasing because it debases the word lie. Yeah. If you actually lied, you need to take it to confession. <laughs> right. But you just made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, we seek and we need clarity and precision in our language. But that's more than just consensus as to definitions. You know, because when you use language in real life situations, it's, it's common to mean something and to have that meaning missed. But when you apply it to God, I mean, even in medieval theology, when you had Christendom and you had, you know, consensus as to the meaning of words, you also recognized that you can't just simply take words and apply them to God. Mm. You know, the, the triplex VA, the three ways of analogical predication. Aquinas says, okay, there are similarities between God as Father and human fathers. But the second stage is to negate, to the via negationis is the dissimilarities are immeasurably greater. Mm. You know, and so the third step is the way of eminence because whatever is true and common about fatherhood is immeasurably truer of God as a father. Right. So it's not reducible to the corporeal, the physical, the genital, the sexual, it really has more to do with the spiritual, the moral, the interpersonal love of a father. And the, even in the best of circumstances, it's hard to communicate that. But when you're dealing with a culture <laughs> that is racked with paterphobia, where just the term father evokes sure, toxic sure, masculinity, right. you know, you've got to take 10 steps back and approach this with much greater scrutiny. But that's really what you do in your book a lot, is you talk yes. about the struggles that we have in culture and how do we deal with those and be able to point them out so as to bring people to faith. I think the thing you mentioned probably most often or most profoundly in my mind was suffering and mm. difficulty. You, you said we need to present the world as flawed yes. and, and be honest with that. So I think that's a huge point. Yeah, and this kind of gets to the larger image of reality, because we talked about some specific words, but then we have to ask ourselves, what is the overall picture that we're presenting? Because if the Catholic faith is true, it's cosmic. You know, it, we, our faith encompasses everything, and that is, in fact, the reason it, what's the reason it is true? Only a faith that encompasses everything could actually be what we need. Mm. Um, but I think oftentimes when we present the faith, we present a sort of partial, limited um, version of it. And I think because suffering is so difficult, we, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We try to avoid it as much as possible. And so it's very, very easy to present an image of, you'll become a Christian and everything in your life will be better. <laughs> I think not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, or, oh, you know, this to only talk about the joyful aspect. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that, is, that is fundamentally false, right. because we are people of Easter, we are people of the resurrection, but we go through the cross along the way. We have to die to ourselves, and that's not fun. Right. And I think 
people intuitively recognize that when they're given the sort of happy, happy, shiny picture, there's something that rings false about sure, it. Sure. Well, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, and, and, and who you are is a child of Adam, and Adam fell. You know, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Uh, that's the universal uh, uh, calamity. But in a way, it's a happy fault. I mean, not just Augustine uh, thinks that. I think that because it makes possible stories. If there hadn't been a fall, there wouldn't be a story. You need conflict, mm. discord. Uh, and uh, the story of the fall uh, is fascinating. I mean, Walker Percy was once uh, asked, why are there so many great Southern writers? And the answer was simple, because we lost the war. <laughs> we have this idea of dishonor, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, betrayal that is sort of seared upon the soul of the South. It makes for wonderful stories. You know, it's interesting because I've often thought to myself, you know, this, this, our, our flawed nature generates story very effectively, but I am convinced that because we're made in the image of God, who is the ultimate artist, you know, in the resurrected life, there's still going to be stories, but we'll be able to write them out of perfection, and right. that will be exciting, yeah. because there's gonna be a whole new level of storytelling that we can't get at today, because we're, we're broken. Yeah. But getting back to that idea of the fact that we do live in a broken world, I think we can err too much on the side of showing the brokenness, and in a sense, that's what a lot of secular media does today. Right. There's so many stories you know, of zombies and apocalypse, mm -hmm. it's almost an obsession now um, with the dark side because people recognize that the world has fallen and they, they need to come to grips with it. And where do we have the Catholic response that takes that suffering but puts it in a context where it makes sense? And I think this is part of Tolkien's genius that he puts a great deal of suffering into Middle Earth in a context where that suffering is meaningful. Yeah. And I think, for instance, of, of you know, one of my favorite poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, and his, his work called The Terrible Sonnets, terrible because they deal with, right. with great pain, because mm -hmm. they're bad poems. And he wrestles very forthrightly with depression, with right. deep, deep spiritual and emotional pain. And this is so helpful right. to me. He, he talks it, about those letters sent to dearest him who lives, alas, away. They come back unopened. I mean, that induces a kind of despair. Happily, he overcomes it, because otherwise, those terrible sonnets would never have been written. Hmm. But I mean, he talks about you know, the, the experience of depression, the mind, the mind has mountains, cliffs right. of fall frightful, hold them cheap, those who never hung there. Right, right. And I found that so profound when I was becoming a Christian, because I knew that the world was broken. I knew that, and I didn't know how to make sense of it. And if Christianity just said, oh, everything's happy, then I would know it wasn't true. Right. But here I had this devout Christian poet, and I think it helped him become Catholic in the end as well, who is able to lament pain without holding anything back, and yet he does not lose his faith and trust in God. Right. So he trusts God enough to say, Lord, I have just had it. Right. And that was a really profound witness to me, yeah. because he goes through the pain, does not sure. minimize it, yeah. looks at it, and cries out and doesn't feel the need to put on a happy ending. 
Well, he has that long poem that nature is a Heraclesian fire and on the comfort of the resurrection in which he yokes together two utterly mm. disparate images, the image of, of fire, Heraclitus. The only, the only constancy is that things change. <laughs> You're never in the same river twice. And in the end, death will have you. Hopkins concedes that. Give Heraclitus his due. But there is the comfort of the resurrection. And that's the great but. Because I think only if we truly face up to the reality of pain can we have any convincingness in our resolution to it. Right. Yeah. No, that conviction, I think, applies to not just, oh, you know, uh, preparing people to be evangelized. It has to carry into the evangelization itself, but it has to continue on. You know, you point out in the book, but you just pointed out a moment ago, you converted and became a Christian and then became a Catholic. But then in the process, you describe in the book how conversion cannot be reduced to what happened when I mm. became a Christian or just when I became a Catholic. It's ongoing. And, and so evangelizing is sharing the good news. But when you catechize, you don't stop evangelizing. If anything, the good news gets better. And then when the catechumens cross the threshold and get baptized and confirmed and receive communion, it's sort of like, you know, the, the good news is now almost too good to be true, and yet yeah. it's enveloping us. Yeah. And, you know, I, I compare it to courtship, engagement, and marriage, how I fell in love and how I made the commitment and then how we celebrated the covenant, the sacrament. But in the process, you discover that married people can end up lonely because they're not falling in love anymore. Mm. Whereas this apologetic imagination, constructing an apologetic based upon beauty and story, suffering and drama, your own or others, you know, invests the evangel that we use to evangelize. I mean, there is the greatest suffering of all. Why can't God just forgive us? <laughs> Why does he have to become man and die? I mean, Allah will just forgive. There is no incarnation, no Paschal mystery. And so suffering has to enter into the dramatic presentation of the gospel. And we don't just kind of say, well, we outgrew that shell. Now we're catechizing. Yeah. No, with the Lord's Prayer, with the creed. I mean, the creed showcases he descended into hell and everything else as well. And so it's, it's sort of like we distinguish to unite as Catholics. Exactly. We distinguish evangelizing, catechizing, sacramentalizing to show how there's an organism, the body of Christ into which we are drawn and into the story, the drama, the narrative. And suddenly it isn't like, who's imposing their narrative on me? <laughs> it's like, this is a story worth living and dying for. Yeah. And we're in the story. And I that's think that's, right. I, I am very much in favor of the need for apologetics within the church because we need to grow in our faith. Um, it's like you know, being in an organism. You need to be taking in nourishment and, and renewing your body. Same thing spiritually. So if we're not deepening in our faith, we're not, we're not doing what we should. Right. That's right. It's infinitely Spiritual rich. growth is constant right. inversion. Uh, exactly. You know, Tolkien uh, says about Christianity, never was a tale told that men would rather find true. If we think it's true, then we have an obligation to remind people why it's true. And the to good news, That's Yes, right. the good news against the backdrop mm. of this utterly disastrous bad news. I mean, you can't really appreciate filet mignon until you've dismissed the Big Mac. <laughs> I've had one too many. It's time for the filet. Yes. Yeah. You speak in it, uh, some of the dangers of the imagination and apologetics. Maybe just real briefly, what might some of those be? 
Well, I think one danger is that if we, as we saw it at the beginning, if we let it be unmoored from doctrine, because the imagination is only one faculty, we need also the rational faculty and we need to have the will. So one of the dangers of the imaginative approach is to think it's the only approach. Okay. Now, I think it's a great approach, but it has to be connected with propositional truth. Now, the, the way that they go together, that's an issue for the teacher, for the apologist to judge the moment, but they have to be together because otherwise we have a, a great image, but no, nothing to connect it to. And the other danger, I think, is we have to invite the will to act because let's say that we have this meaningful image and we've convinced the reason that it's true. Well, it's possible just sit there and not what? act no, on exactly, it. Exactly. And we have to encourage people to take that next step to say, okay, this is meaningful, great. You see it's true, great. What are you going to do about it? Right, and that right. act of the will is, is necessary. And up next, our panel and our guest will have our final thoughts on today's topic. Please stay with us. C.S. Lewis experienced quite uh, a journey in his own personal life. Uh, he lost his faith uh, at a very young age, and uh, later he began reading uh, authors who appealed to his imagination. And uh, there was one particular conversation that he had with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, and Tolkien shared with him his idea of Christianity being the one true myth. Uh, this appealed to Lewis's imagination, the idea that God entered human history incarnate at a specific point in time under the reign of Pontius Pilate and the Emperor Tiberius. And so the idea that Christ had entered human history, myth became real, that forever changed the, the landscape of, of literature. And it was this event that was a, a major impetus in the conversion of C.S. Lewis. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment, so Regis, if you'd like to start. Yeah, this has been a really lively conversation, and uh, what a tribute to you. You've written a, a profound uh, and beautiful book, and the cover alone is really quite gorgeous. I mean, it, it looks as if it came from a William Morris uh, print. I don't know. Uh, it's the Lindisfarne Gospel. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Well, that's it's stunning. Uh, and you're so wonderfully learned and uh, marvelously passionate about what, what you believe. Uh, and uh, I think there is so much to commend uh, about your book and about your presentation, your uh, winsome uh, defense of it. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, something that Dorothy Sayers once said, which has always stayed with me, that the dogma is the drama. Mm. And it's the most staggering drama that ever struck the imagination of man. And it's not about uh, happy feelings or something nice after death, but what she calls the terrifying assertion that the God who made the world, entered the world, uh, and submitted to the grave and the gate of death. And somehow, vanquished death. I mean, that's a thrilling story. Mm. Even if it weren't true, it would be fabulous uh, uh, fantasy. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's a whole lot in your book that we need to revisit, relearn. Mm. Yeah. Thank that's you. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Regis. Scott. Yeah, I want to build on that. I want to thank you for the book and also express my gratitude for allowing us at the St. Paul Center and Emmaus Road to publish it. We really do work on the beauty of the cover art, but I mean, 
the beauty of the content is also there. And as someone who's been associated with apologetics now for over 30 years, I found your approach to be the best of all. And I'm so grateful, and especially for the last chapter, Paradigm Shift, because I, I just want to cite what you call an integrated approach. There are five slight corrections against individualism, as though it's just up to me, apart from the church, to convert or to convert others, you know. The second is this against a rationalism, that it's really about arguing people into conversion. The third I would call is uh, voluntarism, that it's all about a kind of decision that I must make and everything is reducible to that. The fourth is this idea of, uh, it's an ahistorical idea of conversion, it's a kind of a, an experientialism where everything comes down to my experience and I look back on that, but I don't, I'm not called to something ever deepening. And the last point is this, I think the most important, and that is the militaristic approach to apologetics. I mean, we're winning souls and we're trying not to lose them, but it's not reducible to the battlefield. There really is a sense in which, you know, love is needed. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so what you then go on to do is to not just say, don't do these things. The integrated approach does all of the following. And it's personal, it's interpersonal, it's sacramental, it's dramatic, and at the end, it's beautiful. And I think this book is going to inspire a new generation of apologists. That's my hope. That was our hope in publishing it. And in rereading it, I am really confident that everybody who reads this is going to say, this is what I've been looking for. That's great. That's great. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Holly. <laughs> Well, I think you know this this whole idea of the integrated approach is really central to to what I'm doing as an apologist, and that's the great Catholic both and right. intellect and imagination, faith and works, um, beauty and truth and goodness. It's that that great and. And the the last thing I want to share is just the the way that an individual Catholic can live this out because it's. This idea of an integrated approach to apologetics is not just for the professionals. It's for everybody, because if we ourselves can be more integrated in our faith, we will be more effective witnesses. And this can include feeding the intellect with good homilies that we can, we can read. For instance, I read, um, I have a volume of uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox's sermons that I've been reading one per per night um, before I go to bed. Um, you, know, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> he's a great apologist. Great use of metaphor as well. Yeah. So we, can, we need to feed the intellect. Um, we, need to, um, we need to be feeding the imagination with wholesome stories um, and images. And we need to be fulfilling, you know, using our will, actually acting out, living the things that we profess. And I think, you know, this idea of, of beauty and feeding the imagination, that you know, that can be very simple. It can be as simple as, as making sure that you've got good devotional art, you know, like this, you know, beautiful sun diamond on a cross. I've got that in my prayer corner at home. And things that remind us both of the truth of the faith and of its beauty can be a way that we can nourish ourselves as integrated Catholics and and be able to be better witnesses. Could, could I interpose something very quickly? This is, this John Henry rules, Cardinal but... Newman. I mean, he's a saint. He was a novelist. He wrote yes, two sure, novels. Sure, sure. And what really struck him, or the readers of his novel, Loss and Gain, was seeing the protagonist watching Catholics come into a church and kneeling. Mm. I mean, that's what moved him more than the syllogisms. Yeah. Well, Re Regis, you kind of went out of, out of bounds there. <laughs> going, going rogue, but that's great. <laughs> 
Well, Dr. Ordway, we just want to thank you so much for being here. If you uh, would like the handout, which is just a part of Dr.'s book, uh, you can uh, call us and contact us, and we'd be happy to make that available. It would be yours free simply by going, by going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see on the screen in just a moment. I just find myself uh, greatly appreciative of your book. One of the things that, that I try to do when I preach is, one of the things you do in your book is get past, I don't know, whatever separates us, us and the reader, but me and, and the person that I'm preaching to. And I think when we're able to get to the story, uh, to their heart, there was a movie a number of years ago, I don't remember even what it was, and somebody was talking to somebody else and sharing a difficulty in their life. And they said, oh, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened to me? And she said, I don't know the fact, but I know the feeling. Mm. And I just I found myself praying and thinking about that over the years, that there's something that when we can get to, everybody's facts are a little bit different, but it's that feeling, it's that, it's that heart, it's that story that's so important. And, and I think the nature of evangelization, catechesis, and apologetics is being able to get to that point. When I reflect on the scriptures, I, I think of... Jesus in his use of stories. Like some, I, I like to tell stories when I preach. And Jesus says there was a father and he had two sons, right? Yep. And, and he tells a story. I could, no, I was going to say I could wax eloquently. I can't wax eloquently. <laughs> but what I can do is I can tell a story uh, of what, what God has done in my life and what he's done in people's life and my family's life and friends' life. And, and the reality is, is people remember story. You know, they, they may not get the whole gist of, of what I said, for the, but there's a story. And I think the other part is for us to recognize that each one of us has a story. And the Lord is writing a story in our life. And, and, and to not be ashamed of that. And, and to recognize that sometimes the story is a drama and sometimes it's a comedy and sometimes it's... But the Lord is present in that. And for us to be able to come to understand and, and see that, that my story interacts the story of, of grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation... Uh, and then that becomes real for me. It's not just somebody else's. And, and that's one of the things I tell people about sharing their faith. I think some people are worried, I don't know if I know enough. I don't know if I've read enough. I don't know. that All of that's important. I think what you said is so beautifully important. But it's so important that I know my own story too. Yep. And, and that's, that's just the grace that I think the Lord gives us to be able to recognize in stories the Lord is present in that. So... Uh, just thank you again for being here. And I invite everybody to, and thank you for watching uh, our program, but also to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University of Universe, excuse me, part of Franciscan University of Steubenville. That's who we are, right? Uh, and join us in our mission here to educate, to evangelize, and send joyful disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can enroll in one of our education programs or get a degree here on campus from one of our online programs. Another way to connect with Franciscan University is through our life-changing summer conferences for adult or for young people, or travel with us on one of our many pilgrimages to holy shrines in Italy, Poland, the Holy Land, or other sacred destinations around the world. Remember to go to faithandreason.com for today's handout, or to watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, which will surely inspire you. We ask the Lord's blessing to be upon us and fill us with His grace. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888
333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.